A man can only serve one master. That's what I told my friends as I quit our band and moved to Montreal to focus entirely on cooking. I was 27, and this was the most crucial decision I had made in my life up until that point, and I knew it. That decision led me to my dream job, to the Yukon, to my Red Seal, and my wife and son. The moment I decided to change my life, I set a series of events in motion that would span the next decade and lead me directly to reading this for you now. This is not a story of everything going right and getting what you want. It is a story about disillusionment, disillusionment, excuse me, death, pain, love, and discovery. I'm Chef Ben. This is Food in Five, and this is my story. And I thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Choosing your master. I was 21 or 22 when we started the band. At the time, I was working at a diner flipping eggs and pancakes. I didn't like my job very much, but I didn't hate it either. It wasn't precisely the haute cuisine I had imagined cooking when I dreamed of being a chef as a child, but I was cooking, and at that time, that was enough. I wasn't the kind of person to make plans. I had dreams, but I had no idea how to achieve them, and I made no effort towards them. I floated, talking a big game, but putting no points up on the board. In our spare time, my roommate and myself and some friends of ours would get together and play music. It was fun. We were young and decided that we should start a band. And so the Baked Tones were born. We were a garage rock band with a 60s punk style, and we found some minor success with it. Eventually, we reached a point where we had to decide whether we focus full time on the band and make a real go of it or just keep doing what we were doing. I eventually left the diner and miraculously got a job working in an upscale steak and seafood restaurant. The chef, Brad, who was a close friend to this day, saw something in me and gave me a shot. What became apparent very quickly was that I was in over my head. I had always dreamed of cooking food like they were making at this upscale place, but I let anxiety and fear get the best of me. I was the only person there who hadn't gone to culinary school, and I let that get in my head. And instead of asking questions and taking advantage of the combined knowledge that I was surrounded by, I internalized my fear and shut down. I didn't talk to anyone. Before dinner service, everyone would be standing around talking, and I would be in the corner by myself with my arms crossed. I was so afraid that I wouldn't fit in that I made myself not fit in, and I blew it. Luckily, there was a more casual restaurant in the company that needed someone, and I got sent down there. I was more in my element and began to thrive, and within two weeks, I got a promotion to sous chef. I realized right then that even if I didn't have the knowledge that the other cooks had, I was just as talented as them. So I set out to learn everything I could and level the playing field. My education had begun. My education. I've never cared much for school. It wasn't that I didn't understand or that I couldn't do the work. I just never applied myself. I didn't see the point. Plus, during my last few months of high school, I was living on my own and working two jobs. There wasn't much room for studying. After high school, I had every intention of going to culinary school, but I put up all these invisible roadblocks because I was, that, I was afraid that I would go and that I would fail. I'd never applied myself to any, anything before. I'd never cared about anything, really. But this, this was what I wanted since I was six or seven years old. What if I failed? Somewhere deep in my mind, I decided that it was safer just to not try at all. 
so I didn't go to culinary school, and that was a mistake that haunted me for years. As a little salt in the wound, the head of the awards committee told me at my high school graduation that if I had decided to go to culinary school, they would have given me the money and scholarships to pay for the whole thing. There are a lot of things that a culinary school doesn't teach you. There are things that you can only learn from real-world experience. What you do get from culinary school is a base of knowledge. You learn the language of food. And this is where cooks that went to culinary school had a leg up on me. But when it came to real-world experience, being able to work a line, being able to cook multiple things at once, to work hard and move fast and think my way out of problems, I had them beat. I knew that if I filled in the gaps in my knowledge, that I would be a force to be reckoned with. So the first time in my life, I applied myself. I studied every cookbook I could find. I asked questions, read, and cooked constantly. Over a few years, I had filled in most of the gaps that had been holding me back. But once again, I found myself at a job that I didn't love but didn't hate. I felt trapped and stagnant, and not just in cooking, in my relationship and in the band. I had reached a point where I had taught myself everything I could, so I needed to find a new teacher. The summer that I was 25, the four other members of the band and I climbed into our drummer's 1984 Volkswagen Westphalia and went on tour around New Brunswick, Quebec, and Ontario. It was two weeks of intense, crazy fun combined with long, hot, monotonous drives. That trip marked my first visit to Montreal, which would lead to a stupid-slash-important decision a few years later. The decision to change it all. I was 27 when I decided to blow up my life. That may sound a bit dramatic, but it's kind of what happened. I broke up with my girlfriend in March. It was now July, and I was still living with her and one of my bandmates. It was not a good situation. At some point that month, I was talking to my mom on the phone, and I mentioned how I was feeling depressed, and like I just wasn't going anywhere with my life. She made an off-the-cuff suggestion that I should move to Montreal, as I had loved it so much when the band was on tour a few years earlier. I don't know if she expected me to jump at that like I did or not, but I did. And six weeks after that phone call with my mom, I got off a plane in Montreal with no job, nowhere to live, very little money, and no plan. All of my stuff was either sold or in storage back in Nova Scotia. On the surface, it wasn't the smartest move I've ever made. My mom telling me that I should move to Montreal gave me the permission that I needed to make that decision. It wasn't that I needed her approval. It was just that in my mind, I would now be able to justify failure. It was my mom's idea, not mine. If I failed, I could pin the whole thing on her. Really, though, it was what I wanted. I knew it was what I wanted. I was just too scared to do anything about it. The thing is that when you put yourself in a crazy situation, like being in a strange city where half the people speak a different language and you have nowhere to go, you figure out pretty quickly that this is your responsibility. No one is coming to save you. Blaming someone else doesn't mean anything when you're facing sleeping on the street for the night. So I scrambled. I got a taxi and told the driver to take me to his favorite cafe downtown. I went in, ordered a, co a coffee and a croissant, as one does, and searched local listings for apartments, hostels, anything. One of the many things that I hadn't taken into account was that this was a holiday weekend and every hotel and hostel was full. Luckily, after an hour or two of full-blown panic, someone had gotten back to me. By late in the afternoon, I was standing in my very own fully furnished bachelor's apartment. It was a dump, but I didn't care. 
It was cheap and it was mine. I had stepped up for maybe the second or third time in my life and took control of something that mattered. I was proud of myself. But if I wanted to stay in Montreal, I needed money. It was time to find a job. I'd gone to Montreal to learn, not just to live and work. I needed a job, but more importantly, I needed something that was going to teach me the things that I needed and wanted to know. The first callback I got came a day or two after I had arrived. It was a Chinese restaurant on the other side of the city. I thought about it, but it was a hard choice to turn to turn down that offer as I had no other prospects at the time. But I couldn't accept a job that was just going to be another job. On my fourth day in Montreal, I got another callback. This one was a bistro and was only three train stops away. I went to the interview, got offered the job, and accepted immediately. Olivieri. Bistro Olivieri was a small restaurant tucked into the back of a French bookstore in the Côte de Neige region of Montreal. The menu changed twice a day, every day, and regularly featured awful like heart, kidneys, and even goat testicles. What was even crazier to me than the fact that these would be put on a menu was that they would sell out. You could put you could never put ghost testicles on a menu in Halifax or most places and expect to sell even one order, let alone all of them. And goat testicles are surprisingly delicious, by the way, if you ever get the chance, try them. The chef at the bistro was a man from Alberta named Craig, whose food was influenced by Eastern European and Scandinavian. I was able to learn a lot from him, even though I was only there for a short while. It was about two weeks after I had started a bistro Olivieri that Craig announced that the sous chef would be leaving. That same day, I was offered the position. Being the sous chef meant that I was I would be responsible for writing the lunchtime menu every day and getting Craig prepared for the evening service, as well as doing the ordering, helping with inventory, and organizing the kitchen. It also came with a pay raise, and of course, I said yes. This was my dream job. I got to push myself and learn new things every day. It was amazing. It was the most fulfilled I had ever felt in a job, and I loved living in Montreal, even though I was lonely. It was everything I had wanted it to be. But then, in late January, early February, I got a call from my sister that my mom was in the hospital. It wasn't urgent to the point that I needed to come home, but I needed to be prepared to get back to Nova Scotia quickly if I had to. By late February, I had sold or given away the few things I had accumulated in Montreal. I told Craig that I probably wasn't coming back, and I got on a train headed for home. Mom. I had been home at Christmas and could tell that my mom wasn't doing great. But I had spent all of my life expecting to wake up and to find my mom dead. That sounds dramatic, I know, but she had been sick her whole life. She had spent most of her childhood in and out of the hospital. Before she had even started school, she had undergone multiple surgeries on her kidneys and had been pronounced dead a few times. But my mom was a fighter. She had been through that, and despite being told she would never have kids, she had three. She went through being a single mom and moving with three small kids out of the city to an old farmhouse it was so poorly insulated that there would be frost on the walls on especially cold days. She chopped the wood for the fire, washed her clothes in the bathtub by hand, and looked after all three of us while doing it. To put it mildly, my mom was a superhero. It may seem crazy to have moved so abruptly to the country, but when I was three, I was beaten pretty badly by some neighborhood kids with hockey sticks, and my mom had had enough. So she did what she thought was best for us. On top of all this, when I was in my early 20s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She beat it without chemo because her kidneys wouldn't have been able to take it. She was not a woman who was going to go down easily. So when I saw her at Christmas of that year, I knew she wasn't doing great, but I didn't know how bad it was. 
I got home sometime at the end of at the end of February. The couple of weeks before me leaving Montreal had been pretty rough. My family was hurting and I was far away. I felt utterly alone. I was drinking a lot to help cope with the pain and it was affecting my work. Craig understood what I was going through. He had lost his mother a few years before and he was incredibly supportive, but he couldn't keep covering for me and I knew that. So when it was time for me to go home, it was also time for me to leave the bistro. I could have bunk, I could have gone back, but in some ways, the conversation I had with my mom that pushed me to go to Montreal had created a connection to her there. When she died a few weeks after I got home, I couldn't be, bear to be anywhere that reminded me of her. So I abandoned the job that I've been dreaming of since I was a little boy. When I had come home at Christmas that year, I had met a girl who lived in the Yukon and was back in Nova Scotia, visiting our mutual friends. She had come to stay with me for a few weeks in Montreal in January and she invited me to stay with her and her mom in Whitehorse. A little more than two weeks after my mom died, I got on another plane, went to the other side of the country, and started a new chapter of my life. Whitehorse. I arrived in Whitehorse on April 5th, 2013. It was minus 35 degrees Fahrenheit. April 5th happens to be both mine and the girl I was going to stay with's birthday. The girl was Suzanne, who is now my wife and the mother of my son. But then she was a girl I had known for four months. It was crazy that I had packed my bag and moved to the Yukon to be with a woman I hardly knew. But it didn't seem crazy to either of, either of us. It seemed like the most practical thing in the world. Once again, I found myself in a strange place with no job. Though luckily, this time, I knew someone and had a place to stay. It took a little longer for me to find a job in Whitehorse than it had in Montreal. But I did eventually find one at a brand new restaurant. It wasn't even open yet. The chef, Rob was Hungarian and like Craig and Brad before him, taught me a lot. But other than making a few good friends and cooking a lot of good food, I got two precious things at a white horse. I got my wife and I got my red seal. I don't remember what the specific catalyst was that drove me to pursue my red seal. Maybe it was Suzanne, perhaps it was the guys at work who already had theirs. Whatever the push to do it was, I was going to do it. Generally speaking, there are two paths to getting your red seal. The first and most common path is to go to school and get your journeyman's papers, then do an apprenticeship, and eventually, when you've accumulated enough hours, do a practical and a written exam. The other way is to work for years, declare that you think you know enough uh, and have learned enough to pass the test. You have to prove that you've worked enough hours in a variety of restaurants and styles of cooking, then write the test. Obviously, I took the second path. It was sometime in late May or early, or early June when I contacted the Yukon Apprenticeship Board and declared my intent to write the test. The next available time to write it was in October. So I spent the next four months reading the culinary textbooks I had collected over the years and picking my chef and sous chef's brains for information. By the time October rolled around, I was as ready as I was going to be. I went in and wrote the test and passed it in and waited to hear back about my results which took 21 agonizing days. For those of you that don't know, a red seal is an, is an interprovincial excuse me, trade recognition in Canada. Every trade from plumbing to electricians to cooks have it. It signifies that you know enough about your trade that an employer anywhere in Canada can confidently hire you. In most trades, getting your red seal also means a pay bump and more job options. What I learned after I got my red seal is that in cooking, it means pretty much nothing unless you work in hotels. But at that time, it meant the world to me. 
It was my way to clearly and decisively prove to myself and anyone that doubted me that I knew just as much as anyone who had gone to culinary school. Finally, it showed me that the decision I had made a few years earlier to quit music and focus on cooking was the right one. Up until that point, it was the biggest and most proud accomplishment of my life. As happy as I was to get my red seal, the moment I found out I passed was bittersweet. The person I wanted to tell most in the world was my mom. I knew how much it would have meant to her. It had been less than a year since she had passed away, and it was her death that had pushed me to White Horse, and probably to my Red Seal, too. In some ways, it feels like that was her final gift to me. Turn the page. Shortly after I got my Red Seal, Suzanne and I returned to Nova Scotia. It was home, and we both missed it. Other than getting my Red Seal, my only real goal was to become a head chef. And that became my focus and caused me to make a few lousy career decisions. I was chasing the title of chef rather than just trying to become the best chef I could be. I ended up running a few places that I shouldn't have had anything to do with, which caused me to spiral out of control a little bit. Once again, I found myself drinking more than I should uh, and falling into a bit of a depression. And just like before I had left for Montreal, I felt like I was just floating around with no direction. I was feeling this buildup of frustration with the industry where I had spent my whole adult life. I had my red seal. I proved myself that I wasn't where I wanted to be. I was the only person that my red seal seemed to matter to. And what I thought was going to be a golden ticket was nothing more than a laminated piece of paper taking up space in my wallet. I was at that point where I was ready to walk away forever. I just didn't know what else I would do. The only shining light during this dark period was that my relationship with Suzanne was growing great to the point that we got engaged. She saw what was going on with me, and I think she was feeling it in her own work life. And so we decided to quit our jobs and to go to Portugal for five weeks. It was a fantastic trip, but when we came back, we found ourselves again in the same position where we had been in before. Only this time, we were poorer and had to find new jobs and a new place to live. Rather than focusing on getting our work lives on track, we found mediocre jobs and focused our attention on planning our wedding. On June 4th of 2016, Susan and I got married only a few feet away from where four years prior I had told my bandmates I was quitting and moving to Montreal. Two months later to the day, I was driving Suzanne to a bus station in Truro. It was raining. A kid, 19 or 20 years old, was speeding, lost control of his car and hit our back driver's side tire going at least 115 or 120 kilometers an hour. Our car spun out of control, possibly flipped, we aren't sure, crossed two lanes of traffic, and landed hard backwards in the median. Thankfully, everyone involved survived, but even though our injuries were classified as minor, they led to over three years of physiotherapy, chronic pain, stress, and depression. <clears throat> it wasn't a great way to spend the first few years of our marriage. Luckily, Suzanne's injuries were less severe than mine, though it was no less traumatic an experience for her than it was for me. My injuries were mainly sustained to my neck and shoulder. These quote-unquote minor injuries had a significant impact on my work. I was only able to perform limited duties for four hours a day, three days a week, and even that was more than I could handle at times. For the first time in my life, I couldn't cook professionally. It was all I had ever done, and now I couldn't do it. I was scared and lost. But then I got an offer from a catering company where Brad, the first chef to take me under his wing, worked. They wanted to start a cooking school and thought I would be a good fit. 
I didn't have to cook day to day, which would be good for my body. And there was a lot of paperwork to do, which was something I could do with my injuries. On top of all this, I got to work with Brad again. So I quit my job and went to work at the catering company. Catering. I realized pretty quickly that the catering company and the job wasn't what I thought it was. And once again, I found myself at a job I didn't like, but this time I felt like I was being taken advantage of and I had no other option. Because of my injuries, I couldn't go to work in another kitchen anymore, and I wasn't qualified to do anything else. I was stuck. The catering company pushed me into the public eye as the face of the company doing TV appearances and hosting an online cooking show. I didn't mind doing these things, but I did mind that my face was so strongly linked to a company that was doing things that I disagreed with and had no power to change. But I knew that my job hinged on me continuing to put my face out there. I needed some sort of backup plan. So I started the blog, chefsnotes.com, and an Instagram account. And before long, I started to get some notoriety on my own. I did an interview in the paper specifically about my Instagram account. And I got a call to do a TV spot completely separate from the catering company. And to be clear, I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't taking business away from the company at all. But they didn't like that I was getting the attention that in some ways was overshadowing them. I saw it as a good thing for the company because every, even everything I did was linked back to them and gave them free publicity. But that wasn't enough. Then one day near the end of April in 2018, I had a meeting with the owner of the company and the operations manager. It was made clear that I either had to delete the blog and my Instagram account or I didn't have a job anymore. And despite not having any real plan or prospects, that was the easiest decision I've ever made. Exiting the airport again. Leaving the catering company was both relieving and terrifying. I had those same feelings as when I had walked out of the airport in Montreal. I knew just that despite my fear and anxiety, it was my responsibility to figure this out, and I got right to work. I knew that I couldn't work every day in a kitchen anymore, but I figured that I could work a few times a week as long as I didn't have to keep pace with other cooks. There was a clear path for me to take. I just wasn't sure how lucrative it would be. For years, I had wanted to start my own business, teaching cooking lessons and doing private dinners. I had even done a few before I moved to Montreal, but at that time, I didn't feel like I had the knowledge and skill to pull it off. That wasn't a problem anymore. I had my red seal, and I had taught countless cooking lessons with the catering company, and I felt ready. And within a week or two, I had my first client for a series of cooking classes. Shortly after that, I got a few bookings for dinners, and within a month, I was making my living solely from dinners and lessons. There was no one telling me what to do. I cooked the food that I wanted, and I worked when I wanted. For the first time in my life, I felt entirely free. I wasn't rich, but I felt like I was. And over the next two years, the business continued to grow, and I began to make more money than I ever had working in restaurants. Then came COVID. The now times. In October of 2019, Suzanne gave birth to our son, Lewin. We knew before he was born that we didn't want him to grow up in the city, so moving out of downtown Dartmouth, where we lived, had long been on our minds. In another strange turn of fate, we lived only a few blocks from where my mother had first packed us up and moved to the country. But as my business was still under two years old at that point, we weren't able to get a mortgage and we didn't see the point in renting somewhere else, so we put it off and put it off. Then, just as COVID was hitting, we had the opportunity to move to a family-owned home in Cape Breton. My business was completely shut down. Pretty hard to have a chef come into your house when you're social distancing. So we took the opportunity and moved to Cape Breton, where we now live.
we're just coming out of the tail end of COVID and no one really knows what's going to happen in the short term. What I do know is that it will be a while before my business is back to full strength if it ever gets back to that point. And once again, I find myself with only one clear direction, the blog, the podcast, all the online stuff. Now, I've been writing the blog for over three years and I've published over 400 posts, but until now, it was always a hobby. I've always loved teaching people about food. Now, as time has progressed, I've come to terms with the fact that I will never be able to work in a professional kitchen again. My passion has shifted more towards teaching as opposed to cooking. And so my goal now is to make the blog, podcast, and all the other online stuff my full-time job. I want to be able to get dedicate myself to sharing everything that I have learned over the years. And I hope that you join me on this new and exciting adventure. Thank you so much for listening to my story. If you'd like to be a part of it, you can do so by subscribing to the podcast, sharing with your friends, or by subscribing to the blog, chefsnotes.com, where you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Chef Ben Kelly. This is Chef's Notes. No, this this is not Chef's Notes. This is Food 5. I'm Chef Ben. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everybody.